This Magic the Gathering podcast and many more can be heard online at manadeprived.com slash podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you think. This is an article from April 23rd, 2004, so about 13 years ago, to the month. To the month. The philosophy of fire. A gold star, if you can tell me what I want to hear about these three decks in concert. First one, uh, one ivory tower, one Jalem tome, two Nebenral's disc, two serrated arrows, one Zurin orb, one dance of the dead, one dark banishing, for Dark Ritual, for Drain Life, for Him to Torek, for Hypnotic Spectre, three Knights of Stromgald, for Order of the Ebon Hand, for Necropotence, one Soulburn, for Strip Mine, two Ebon Stronghold, 17 Swamp. Deck number two? Two Serrated Arrows, two Nevin Rawls Disc, one Brainstorm to Control Magic, four Counterspell, two Disrupt, four Force of Will, Two Impulse, one Interdict, one Mahamodijin, two Whispers of the Muse, three Gaia's Blessing, two Hailstorm, three Natural Spring, one Splintering Wind, two Sylvan Library, four Wall of Roots, five Forest, seven Island, three Thawing Glaciers, four Tropical Island, four Wasteland. And deck number three. Four Lotus Petal, four Mana Vault, four Phyrexian Dreadnought, four Dark Ritual, four Demonic Consultation, Three Duress, four Necropotence, four Reanimate, two Vampiric Tutor, three Final Fortune, four Pandemonium, four Badlands, four Sulfurous Sulfurous Springs, four Gemstone Mine, three City of Brass, five Swamp. If you said Adrian Sullivan made all of them, you have obviously never heard of PT1 Forefather and Standout Leon Lindback. Never heard of him. You're just one of those people then. (laughs) If you said they were innovative decks, then you have merely been paying attention. If you know who designed these decks, where they were played, and how they did in those events, then, knowledgeable as you are, you didn't answer the question. If you said that when they debuted, they represented new ideas and archetypes, then you can pat yourself on the back. (laughs) Now, tell me how they did what they did so interestingly. I'm not EDT, so I don't count Baron Harkonnen quite so highly on the innovation in Archetype Ladder, but I will concede that it did one thing differently, and that one thing happened to be the same thing that Lindback's deck from PT1 and Adrian's subsequent deck Dread Panda Roberts did at interesting and innovative angles. The Baron used its life notoriously as an instrument for card advantage. The other two decks are Necropotence decks, so this is obviously also the case. Pause. Do you know what Necropotence is? Yes, it's a black, black, black for an enchantment. Uh, you skip your draw step, and then you can pay 
a life to draw a card. Yeah, basically pay a life draw. It's not quite that you set aside the cards so you don't draw them. You know, there's no draw trigger. Oh, okay, it happens all only during your end step. So it's a it's a little bit different from draw a card, but that's basically what it does. Gotcha. Uh, it's a very powerful card drawing card. All right. Lynn Bax from New York was the first and most influential, if not the greatest, and has the pedigree of the premier PT Top 8. The third from PT Rome was, to my knowledge, the first combination deck to specifically use the card Necropotence in order to assemble its combination kill. So all of you who have ever been cheesed out by Skull Catapult, Tricks, or ID-19 can thank the Corrupter. Though all of you who net-decked your ways to big wins can thank the British, Dr. Bush, and Zvi. Ready to trade your life for cards? Here's the warm-up question. It is the top four of the 1999 Ohio Valley Regional Championships. You are playing a standard Necropotence deck. You are up a game, and in commanding position, your opponent got the beatdown. Draw with Skittering Scourge, Dothy Horror, and Dothy Slayer. But you came back hard with Stronghold Taskmaster, and a well-placed Drain Life. You then went bashy-bashy and put your helpless opponent on 12, with you on 20 life. Commanding, as I said, you have no cards in hand, but put the nail in the coffin by tapping three of your four lands to plop down Necropotence. Pay four, you say. Your opponent slumps in his chair. Four? Are you kidding me? You are at 20 and your clock is twice as big as mine, you could at least play right. Fine, you say. Necro for seven. As you adjust your die, when you realize your error, you make him... You, you, uh, cut there. As you adjust your die, when you realize your error, you make a move to go back, but before you even ask, head judge might... It's Donay. So Donay. stop here. We'll make a <laughs> okay, note. What okay. is it? At five thirty. Five thirty. Okay. Well, I'll start. I'll start. Uh, as you adjust your die, do it again. Donay. <clears throat> as you adjust your die, when you realize your error, you make a move to go back. But before you even ask, head judge Mike Donay shakes his head. These aren't the droids you were looking for, says an onlooker with a reversed fitted baseball cap. What do you do now? Randy actually wrote an article about this board but I can't find it using archive.org. As I recall, he emphasized the beauty of the mind trick rather than what the Necropotence player could have done to get out of the situation. Personally, I'd like to think of it as a real beauty. Amusing, not dirty at all, but ultimately deadly effective. Young Master Sammons went down to 13. I had a skittering scourge that he couldn't block. Thanks, Flying and 12 life, 11 of which could tag-team with my Scourge's reduced 2 power to finish him off exactly with the hatred I was holding. Mike wouldn't let him go back after he announced paying the life. But all was not lost. Bad guy Necro had an out, but he didn't use it. Again, I ask, what should he have done? So, uh, are, are you seeing what's going on here? So, he's at 20, mm-hmm. and, you know, he's got... Three cards in hand. So he says um, Necro for four, which would put him to 16, right? That puts him to seven cards at the end of his turn mm-hmm. okay? uh, with one mana open. So I'm basically just calling him out like, oh, you're winning. You're going to win. You know, you could at least play right. So mm-hmm. 
at the top tables, people don't necro up to seven card hand. They necro past a seven card hand, so they just have the hand they want. Yeah. Like, it's arbitrary to be at seven cards. Like, for example, you could be at seven cards and then not make your land drop. That would be really bad, right? So you want to you want to necro high enough that you would at least make your land drop and play all the cards in your hand and then necro for a whole new hand. That's what mm-hmm. people do. So what, uh, what does hatred do? So hatred is an instant. It costs BB3, so a total of five, and mm-hmm. it allows you to pay any amount of life. Gotcha. Uh, to give a target creature that much power. So mm-hmm. as an example, in the first round of this tournament, I played a first turn 1-1 one, one creature. My opponent like played a wasteland or something, so I knew he couldn't do anything. So then I just uh, dark ritualed out um, hatred onto the creature, paid 19 life, went from 20 to 1 myself, and then attacked him for 20. Mm-hmm. Right. So in this situation, uh, I have a 2-1 flying creature. He pays 7, which goes down to 13. I have 12 life because he sent me with his 4-3 twice. I can pay exactly 11, add that to 2-13. That's exactly his life total. Gotcha. So basically... You Jedi mind trick him into yeah, paying was, more life. It was a, a good enough Jedi mind trick that the Grand Poobah of Magic the Gathering and a Pro Tour Hall of Famer wrote an article about it. I think that there is only one defensible play here. Salmons had already made a mistake. But it didn't have to cost him the game. He has to necro for 11, putting him on 2 life. That would give him 18 cards in total to use during his end step. In those 18 cards, he would have a maximum, if not certain, chance of finding Dark Ritual and Diabolic Edict. He would have to use the Dark Ritual to play Diabolic Edict and then Mana Burn, which is why it's correct to go to 2 life rather than 1. Mm-hmm. The vastly unlikely scenario that his remaining 16 cards didn't give him a drain or corrupt, Salmons would probably still be able to win with just the Taskmaster. Instead, he passed and got hated out, and then beat me in the third, and then beat one-time U.S. national champion Dennis Bentley in the finals to win the Ohio, the Ohio Valley crown himself. So he actually won the tournament. So he misplayed a game, but then... Came, came back, back in the third, yeah. Oh. <laughs> sounds sounds, sounds, sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> Well, he beat Dennis Bentley in the finals. Dennis Bentley was a U.S. national champion in 96, actually. Hmm. So a player of some, some renown. Uh, Bentley beat me to make a top eight of Grand Prix Washington, D.C. about a month after this tournament. So I did not make top eight. He did. <laughs> <laughs> a neat bit of trivia for you. Mike Denae, Aaron Forsyth, Randy Bueller, Wal- Worth Walpert, and I believe Pat Chapin were watching this match where the Hatred deck was designed by Brian Schneider. The people involved, but not actually playing in that match, were a foreshadow of the future face of R&D. So the head judge was uh, Mike Denae, who I believe is the head uh, designer of Hearthstone now. Okay. Uh, Aaron Forsyth is uh, yep. boss of Magic. Randy Bueller was his boss for years. He was the Grand Prix Bob Magic the Gathering. Worth Walpert, up until very recently, was the head of Magic Moto. And Patrick Chapin was... Uh, mo- actually, a lot of people don't know this. Patrick Chapin was the first ever Magic intern. Uh, oh, really? yeah. So he's a he's a designer at Direwolf Digital now. Yeah. Uh, and then That's Brian, where LSV and yep. uh, Michael Jacob work. Yep. And uh, Brian Schneider was the lead developer. So, like, literally the people who were like <laughs> watching were like three years later were all the people making magic cards. Mm-hmm. I mean, except for Mark Rosewater, I guess. So, why, you may ask, in an article called The Philosophy of Fire, are we talking about archaic deck archetypes and focusing on a card that is restricted, if not banned, in every conceivable format? The reason is that Necropotence gives the average player the most concrete understanding of the interaction between cards and life of any archetype or mechanism. 
The Philosophy of Fire will do the exact same thing, but instead of trading life for cards from your own deck, it speaks about the relationship of trading cards for your opponent's life. Specifically, the goal will be to translate a hand into a dead man. Hmm. Though this is now bordering on Adrian Sullivan Appreciation Day, what we call the Philosophy of Fire is a way of looking at cards and measuring them that Adrian invented during Urza's Block Constructed PTQs. The deck he designed never did anything during those PTQs because he built it after Control at GP Memphis and no longer had any need to test, tune, or play Urza's Block Constructed. Adrian finished top eight at that Grand Prix and qualified for Control. Basically, Adrian's Flame Rifts landslides, and non-echo-paying Gitu Slingers just beat up on Mikey P's V and Rob Hahn at the airport. However, the deck concept was, in my opinion, very interesting and different from any conventional way of looking at cards. You probably have never heard of the Philosophy of Fire, but then again, one can't be adding Necropotence to a combination deck every week, can one? It goes like this. Typically, we look at the economy of a card as a relation to other cards. Consider the simple relationships of a one-for-one shatter or a two-for-one unburden. Second, we have the idea of trading one's own life points for one's own cards. Clearly, the Necropotent decks, an example above, illustrate simple one-to-one exchanges. Lindback and the X for X minus Y exchanges, where a limited number of cards are relevant, Dread Panda Roberts. The interesting thing about Baron Harkonnen is how it uses the card Natural Spring. Natural Spring is a card advantage card in a relational exchange not unlike him to Torok. Line up all of our red beatdown decks cards and all of Baron Harkonnen's cards. That one Natural Spring will trade for four shocks, two incinerates in a shock, a ball lightning in a shock, or two fire blasts and four mountains. That's a boatload of card advantage, from a silly card like Natural Spring that most people would never consider playing. What does it do? It's five mana to gain seven life. <laughs> <laughs> you wow. would never consider playing it, right? I thought this card would be, like, pretty OP, but... <laughs> nope! Five <laughs> mana, it's GG3, gain seven! The more subtle exchange is that recurring Natural Spring with Gaia's Blessing will allow you to draw three cards a turn with Sylvan Library, mm. not unlike the interaction between Drain Life and Necropotent. So Adrian's deck had one Mahamodi Jin, but he could also just use Gaia's Blessing to deck the opponent. If he keeps giving himself Natural Spring, he could just be like, all right, I'm just going to draw Natural Spring and like two counter spells a turn or something, and mm-hmm. then just draw three cards a turn. Now, some of you are probably scratching your heads at the relationship between Natural Spring and Red Burn spells. Let's break it down backwards. We know about trading cards for cards, him to Torok or Wrath of God, our own life for cards, Necropotence or Sylvan Library. But how does Natural Spring properly trade with Shock? The relationship is only valid if there are two exchanges we can perceive. We contrast cards for life, Shock, and again, cards for life in the other direction, Natural Spring, to see the card advantage generated by Natural Spring when compared to Shock. What the Philosophy of Fire does is focus on the first part of the exchange. Rather than looking at cards-for-cards or life-for-cards relationships, it focuses on cards-for-life and associates a value based on the default damage spell being shock. Simple and obvious, right? Step back a second. You know that Necropotent says that x-life equals x-1 cards. 
you know that Sylvan Library says four life equals one card. Now imagine you had a deck of all shocks. Yes, Roman Fusco, imagine you had a deck of all shocks. Oh, boy. <laughs> you would love that, right? Yeah. That says one card equals two life. You start with seven cards. With mana development being your only limiting factor, that means you should be able to draw a lethal hand with ten cards. Now, of course, some of those cards are going to be land. And if they aren't, you won't be able to play your spells anyway. So this counting method does not say that you win or even assemble 20 in the first three turns of the game. In fact, you structure damage in two-point increments. Your kill is probably going to show up in about seven or eight turns. Clearly, that isn't fast enough. So what happens when you up the amount of damage your average card does to three life? How do you count the relationships now? How many of your opponent's cards matter? Ultimately, how fast can you kill? At some point, you can structure your deck in such a way that you will poke for a few damage before your average opponent has blockers or other developmental resources and then end him with a flurry of burn before he can kill you. Most of the time, you will want your cards to do more than two damage each in order to quicken the clock, but I think that two is a good starting point for conceptual measuring purposes. I wonder, Roman Fusco, does this strategy, which had never been written about before, make any kind of sense to you? Hmm, I wonder. <laughs> a deck of cards that say this card equals three life. Or more. Or like, how about I'm going to play a, maybe a, a card that can do a recurring amount of damage. Let's say a creature. And if I hit my opponent twice with, say, a two-power creature, mm -hmm. that's like I got two shocks worth of value out of it. So now I need fewer cards than 10 to win, right? It, that's like card advantage, right? Okay. It's a different way of looking at the relationships between cards. And so most people are like, they understand that an unburden is two cards, right? What's unburden? I don't know any of these old cards. Unburden is in the new set, dude. <laughs> I think it was reprinted. It's BB1, uh, discard two cards with cycling. Oh, okay. I know what you're talking about now. Because it was, it's, yeah, it's like I remember okay. with like the, the Minotaur holding up the yeah. pot of blood or whatever. All right. We can, we'll continue. <laughs> Though I had built and played a number of decks using Adrian's principle over the years, the first serious time effort and trials came with the unveiling of a Paskins deck in 2001 by Mr. DP. Get your mind out of the gutter. It's not Dan Paskins. There was a time, believe it or not, when DP stood for a different red deck designer, specifically David Price. Four Chimeric Idol, three Firebrand Ranger, four Flame Tongue Kavu, three Gitu Fire, four Chris Mage, three Rage Weaver, four Seal of Fire, four Shock, four Skizik, four Urza's Rage, 19 Mountain, four Shot and Port. Dave made the top eight of a grudge match qualifier with this deck prior to U.S. Nationals, where it somehow fell into my hands. And though... I was about to grind into Nationals with literally the finest sealed deck I've ever had. I actually missed the announcement of the next round. It didn't show up. It was obviously Oh, we know this story. We know this story. <laughs> For some reason, Thomas Pinnell didn't use a loudspeaker to announce the round as he had all previous rounds. When Jeff Denae asked if something didn't seem amiss with the huge amount of time between rounds, I just laughed. The grinders were slow as molasses. Anyway... <laughs> With nothing else to do during the first day of U.S. Nationals, I was conscripted by Jeff to gunsling against the, against the JSS kids, preparing their standard decks for their own championship. 
So what happened was he was like, um, not up, Mike. Uh, what are you doing all day here? And he just gave me like a box. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I was like a, a magic celebrity or whatever. So I just played standard against any of the kids who were getting ready for the Junior Super Series, mm. and testing their standard decks. And if they beat me, I'd give them a pack. Oh, that's so nice. pretty cool, right? They, they have that now, at, you know, at, at GPs from have. Yeah. Celebrity players, and if you beat them, you get a pack or something. Yeah, so I, I just played all day. I, played, I think I played eight hours or something. Against like little kids? Against little, yeah, oh, I mean, like, they're all qualified like, for a junior championship. like, oh, my God, it's Mike Florence. Yeah, they were. Seriously? Of course. Um, and then I won the pizza game the next day. Yeah. So it was gas, right? Yeah. Uh, so we know the whole story, right? I won yeah. the pizza game the next day. Children's here. Okay. <laughs> Thus, this version of Dave Price Red actually got several hours of hard trials and against a variety of tournament-level decks and dozens of opponents as it attempted to guard a box of booster packs. I was, like, so ruthless also. Like, people were like, Mike, you're supposed to let them win. You're supposed to give them packs. I'm like, I... <laughs> like, at the end, like, I got one... I think I got one box in the day. Uh-huh. And there were, like... How many? There was, like, 36, 36 packs. packs. I think there were, like, 28 packs left in the box <laughs> oh at the end God, of the day. And I played, kids. like, hundreds of games <laughs> Those poor kids. They just want some packs. They're just like, hey, Mr. Flores, can we play Magic? Sit down, kid. It's time to fry. Oh, my God. The matchups against decks like Big Blue were not a problem. With the early game beatdown easily flowing into Urza's Rage. Urza's Rage is uncounterable. It's a card after your own heart. Or with the rising opposition decks, whose creatures were easily managed by Chris Mage as other monsters chomped away at their precarious 20s. The problem matchup was Fires of Yavimaya. Consider the fact that a Fires deck is essentially a mirror match where the opponent has more and faster mana, haste, and creatures that are two, if not three times the size of Dave, Dave Price Red's. The initial games were awful against Fires, and the deck gave up a string of packs into the greedy hands of eager children. But why did Dave play Rage Weaver and Firebrand Ranger instead of Goblin Raider? Randy had specifically put Goblin Raider into the main set so that Dave would have a two-drop for his decks. That's a true story. Randy Bueller, who's the head of R&D at this point, put a card in so that Dave Price would play it, and then Dave did not choose to play it in his red deck. The reason, Dave said quite surprisingly, Goblin Raider can't block. In reapproaching the matchup against Fires, I operated not as the beatdown deck, but utilizing the philosophy of Fire. A red beatdown deck's plan is to deploy, burn a path, and hit. Failing that, its plan is to deploy, attempt to overwhelm, and finish. But these plans don't work against Fires. Mm. Fires are not only faster than Dave Price Red, its creatures are in many cases too big to burn and difficult or impossible to race on the ground. This sounds like your top four match against like, the guess, giant uh, mental. <laughs> yeah, against uh, Abs and Coco. What happens when you look at the deck purely as a burn deck? What happens when you manage your cards against time rather than their cards? The confident opponent, in my experience, would not generally block an unkicked Skizik on turn four with his fresh and precious Blastoderm. The cocky opponent doesn't realize that decision will, in many games, cost him the duel. Skizix is a 5-4 creature with haste for R and 3, mm-hmm. but you can pay extra to make it not die. But if you did it on turn 4, that wouldn't happen. It would just die. Gotcha. So they wouldn't trade their 5-5 five, five, like, hexproof guy for it because they'd be like, I'm, I have a 5-5 hexproof. Why would I trade like, with your 5-mana burn spell, basically? Mm-hmm. They should have blocked. <laughs> Because you don't care about board development, at least as long as you still have life points, because you are playing with essentially a different paradigm, the way you value cards may not be obvious to the opponent, 
which will force him to make passive errors that do not correctly address your proactive strategy. Your unkicked skizzic is not a loss of a card. It's a quarter of its life total. It's two and a half units of burn, or one and two-thirds, depending on how you are evaluating your hand, though it looks like you are falling behind when the skizzic hits the bin. In fact, that one card overperformed according to your units of measurement. It's difficult to tell you how painful it is to look across the board and desperately throw your second-to-last card, probably a very good flametongue cabu or chimeric idol, at the opponent's head as you chump block with Chris Mage. That's like it deals one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what Chris Mage does. But when it is your only play, you've got to make it. It is impossible to tell you how painful it is for the opponent when you rip the last land, lay it, and direct the Gitu fire for exactly his life total the next turn. The really great thing about the philosophy of fire is that it forces you to play much tighter magic than you might be accustomed to. In many cases, your cards are objectively inferior to your opponents. You're forced to make tough decisions and think each action through before making a play. As an example, with Dave's deck, the proper play when setting up a burn kill against fires will many times involve allowing the opponent to enter the attack, then adding some amount of mana to your pool, then activating your Chimeric Idol, then blocking with your creatures, then pitching a card to Chris Mage, and possibly playing Gitu Fire or Urza's Rage still during the attack. Now, this is not a difficult play to make if you walk through it step by step, but a lazy attack block step or careless pass of priority like the one Ken Crooner discussed earlier this week, will cost you a close game each and every time. My Dave Price fan club teammate Tim McKenna and I have similar games. Tim is definitely the better player and has a Grand Prix top 8 to my pathetic Nationals ninth. But we have similar tastes and attitudes, and also fail the same way. In sealed deck, Tim and I are both willing to take the worst deck on the team, at least as long as it has a little removal and a couple of outs. We know that with our backs to the wall, we will think through our plays and try to formulate a strategy that will let us exploit those outs when they finally come up. Mm-hmm. At the same time, when we are ahead, we both tend to get sloppy. Give us an advantage, and we will find every way in the world to let it slip away. This reminds me a lot of a friend uh, I used to team draft with, my friend Colin. Uh, he was always, if we, if we played team still, he would take the worst deck possible. Yeah. And he would come up with these crazy four-color conundrums, right? I didn't understand it. Yeah. But he would play his way out of any, like, back-against-the-wall situation possible. Well, I mean, and, yeah. Tim and I are pro-tour-level players. I'm trying to give, like, a little <laughs> I'm just messing example with, with my life. But uh, that's like uh, that was, like, one of the things that I thought made him a really good player was he was able to take... Um, those situations and just th- manu- I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. Like he, I was more like a linear draft decker, team sealed decker. So he, he would just build these crazy things. Tim is like a genius, also. So yeah. like, uh, in a future episode, we'll we'll do an article about when Tim and BDM was actually our third when we won a a, a team pro tour qualifier. Oh really? You and BDM and yeah, me, Tim and oh, BDM. This cool. is a real pro team. <laughs> um, like Tim completely outthought like our, our opponents in the finals like it was an utter leveling mm-hmm. uh by making an intentional mistake and he let them see the mistake and then like they they didn't get it right and so we can we'll do that in the future of that okay that'll be fun for another time another time anyway 
When you play focused on the philosophy of fire, your deck won't let you fall into those patterns. You have limited resources and have to manage them precisely in the face of your opponent's qualitative and developmental advantages. You can't make lazy plays. Just look at the board and you will see the impending loss if you don't think your taps, casts, and declarations through. Conversely, when you're ahead, you just tap all your mana and expel the face, denying your opponent the opportunity to outplay your careless ass. Remember when you like double mulliganed and then beat that guy who had all better cards than you and when, when you won the regional championship? That. This is exactly what this is talking about. Like I mean, back, back against the wall using every resource possible. Because you don't have any, right? You're, exactly. Like your deck is like all your cards say, put me into the graveyard. What? Yeah. I mean, I had, I think I, I got a little lucky, obviously, top decking the sudden well, He shock, got lucky right? because he didn't kill you. Well, okay, like, that too. <laughs> but he had an off table kill that he didn't take. But I had to have like all those things come into play, like go right to like yeah. clinch the win, right? I was on a Mulligan of five. I remember. <laughs> I felt really Someday bad. Someday I want you to win happened. another tournament because otherwise you're only going to have one story for the entire lifetime of our podcast. Well, I'm going to Vegas, so we'll see what All happens right. there. <laughs> In the end, Dave didn't play his red deck on day two of Nationals, no matter how good anyone told him it was. He loved the deck, but had, at that point, a string of bad finishes with suboptimal red beaten decks and was worried that his deck had fallen into the pet category. Dave's decision served him well, and he made top eight with fires, partly thanks to Casey McCarroll. A month later, though, players like Brian Kibler ran with Dave's ideas and brought similar decks to Worlds. Star City's own Mighty Potato made the 2001 Worlds Top 8 playing essentially Dave's list, this time with the Goblin Raiders in. So Dave didn't play his own deck. He didn't have, like, I, I played it all day, and I was like, yo, Dave, you should play this deck. This is, like, the, the nut-high deck. And he's, like, the best red player in the world at this point. And he, mm-hmm. and he, he played Fires and made Top 8 anyway, but... Um, Later, uh, the Mighty Potato is uh, Mike Turian, who's mm. a Hall of Famer now, and he made top eight of Worlds that year playing basically Dave's deck. With Rem- Goblin Raider, though. Yeah, with <laughs> Goblin Raider. I mean, look, he swapped like three cards out or something. Remember that clause about non-proprietary decks from last week? Oh, yeah, of course, that was whatever article I'd written the week before. <laughs> Following is a story about this year's efforts towards a burn deck, and a cautionary tale about a pet deck. As I said before, though I almost always try to build at least one deck using the philosophy of fire as a design element in every format, usually without success, mind you, I thought for Regionals 2004, we really had it. Look back on Onslaught Block Constructed. Goblins was the best deck, but the good Goblins deck played more land and got bigger after sideboarding to beat itself in the mirror. Andy Wolf qualified by bringing in Temple of the False God and Menacing Ogre. And my old friend Bill Macy sold a slot after tearing people to shreds with Thoughtbound Primox, Searing Flesh, and Rorex Blade Wing. Now look back at Mirrodin Block PT. Everyone knew that Skull Clamp Affinity was the most powerful choice. But it was again an expensive mono red deck that went big after boarding, if it wasn't already a big old dragon deck that ended up on top. The two blocks that made up the regionals format, and indeed the projected decks to beat of Goblins and Affinity, both lost to big red decks. The standard choice became obvious. The philosophy of fire would be in full effect. With Kuroda's deck from Kobe just getting better with the addition of Rorik's Bladewing and Starstorm, 
the onslaught block version gifted with the best offensive burn spell since Fire Blast. Before I go on, I should probably clue you in on something if you don't already know. Against a beatdown deck, Pulse of the Forge and Rorik's Bladewing is a lock. It's 20 points of damage rolled into two cards, a guaranteed kill on turn 7, and in many games, closer to 5. Because of the interaction between these two cards, you can spend all the rest of your cards sticking around long enough to get your two spells online. Rorix is the biggest, baddest burn spell in your arsenal. He is worth 12 life due to his combination of haste and a second attack. All you have to do is live long enough to cast Rorix, get in there a second time, and you will always win if you draw Pulse of the Forge. You know what Pulse of the Forge is? Thanks for reminding me. It's RR1 for an instant that does 4 damage to target player, not to target creature. But it has an additional clause. Like a turn or something? If they have more life than you, you get it back. Oh. To hand. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's Pulse of the Fields and Pulse of the Forge, and they would fight. Um, They have both have the same clause. So if you Pulse of the Fields, if you have less life than your opponent, you get it back. You gain four life, and then you get it back. Mm. So the I remember... Because Paul Rietzel even then was like a fanatic of white weenie decks, and he's just like, the worst feeling in the world is when your opponent just taps his planes and mana burns on turn one. Because it means he's just setting up a pulse. Mm -hmm. The way it works is Rorix gets in for six, putting them on 14. Now you've still got to be around. You come in for another six. With damage on the stack, you send Pulse of the Forge at their nug. What kind of beatdown deck can't deal seven measly damages in five to seven turns? You buy back the pulse. Now Rorik's hit resolves. Lo and behold, you replay the false. Six plus four plus six plus four is twenty. Six for Rorik's implies six for double pulse the next turn, so it's all good. Go out there and win regionals. In the nascent stages of development, under the assumption of grandfather deck advantage over beatdown opponents, we identified white as a potential problem. We figured it would make up a little under a third of the decks and needed an out. I couldn't believe it, but Seth Byrne, true believer of Mono Red, said to touch green to naturalize the circles out of the board. With this in mind, here is the initial version I built based on the philosophy of fire. Four Talisman of Impulse, four Fireball, four Flame Break, two Hammer of Bogarden, four Menacing Ogre, four Pulse of the Forge, four Rorik's Bladewing, four Shrapnel Blast, four Starstorm, one Forest, four Great Furnace, thirteen Mountain, Four Tree of Tales, four Wooded Foothills. So just uh, this is not the article right now, but I just want to say, like, Zv loved this article when it came out. You know, like, uh, a lot of people end up thinking this is, like, one of the seminal magic articles. And he said that the betrayal of the article was that this deck wasn't actually built on the Philosophy of Fire. It's just a big red deck. <laughs> it's just like, it's like you know, this great argumentation, and then you just present this deck of, like, fatties. <laughs> this yeah. isn't even a burn deck, right? So it has Fireball. Anyway. There's no shocks in here. Yeah, there's no shock. It's not built. It, it's, it, and I, I thought that was incredibly fair criticism. <laughs> <laughs> the theory on Menacing Ogre is that it gives you redundancy on Rourke's Bladewing. You can overbid to ensure that you get Pulse of the Forge buyback and try to mise two points in somehow or other. Somehow, Sometimes the opponent bids the same number that you do, and it's all right with the beatdown. The theory on Flame Break is that you get redundancy on Starstorm. It's also a burn spell that keeps you behind Pulse of the Forge while protecting you on the ground. The beauty of this somewhat janktacular card is it's also splash damage on Troll Ascetic and breaks up the annoying possibility of main deck worship. Initial test results from the rabbit. That's Josh Rabbits. Lost to affinity. Can't win if your Tree of Tales gets killed. <laughs> 
splash damage on Oxidize. So we went in entirely the other direction in an attempt to dodge artifact splash damage. Four Solemn Simulacrum, four Fireball, four Flame Break, two Hammer Burden, four Menacing Ogre, four Pulse of the Forge, four Rorik's Bladewing, four Seething Song, four Starstorm, four Blink Moth Nexus, one Forest, thirteen Mountain, four Wooded Foothills, four Temple of the False God. This version lost the ability to win with Shrapnel Blast as well as the ability to side in Furnace Dragon. We operated under the assumption that we could make up for those shortcomings with the Pulse Rorik's combo. I make up for the lack of Tree of Tales and Talisman of Impulse with Solemn Simulacrum. Report from the Chentis from Rich. People are asking why, if I'm playing with Seething Song, I'm in the Serious Room. Also, Temple of the False God sucks. I never cast my spells. And I'm losing to bidding. But we didn't give up, and Rich refined the list using elements from Seth's version, going back to a Shrapnel Blast base deck with 22 lands and 8 Talismans, testing Furnace Dragon's main. The hybrid deck seems much better than either of the two previous versions, though I didn't like the numbers over much. It seemed to lose because it didn't have enough mana. The other problem was beating goblin bidding. You could get within shooting distance, but you'd always lose to a lethal patriarch's bidding. So I went totally out there and cut a ton of the threats for main deck Molten Rain. Under the theory that you only really needed two cards to win, we figured that cutting threats wouldn't be that bad if we could stifle the opponent's development long enough to get Rorix and Pulse online. Wow, I thought. This was the version that Brian Kibler saw me test the other night at Neutral Ground, making that mistake with Naturalize. Four Solemn Simulacrum, four Talisman of Impulse, three Talisman of Indulgence for Naturalize. Ooh, four, four Naturalize? Two people were all mono artifacts. Oh, yes, yeah, all the... Okay. Two Fireball, four Molten Rain, four Pulse of the Forge, four Rorik's Bladewing, three Shrapnel Blast, four Starstorm, four Darksteel Citadel, one Forest, 15 Mountain, four Wooded Foothills. The tournament version would have had Blink Moth Nexus over Darksteel Citadel, but sadly, they weren't on hand on Magic Online at the time. So what did Molten Rain do? It kind of fixed everything. The Goblin bidding matchup went from close but extremely unfavorable to close but definitely favorable. We only ever needed a turn to close, and Molten Rain bought the turn. If you hit a Swamp, you'd usually keep them off of ever-hitting bidding mana and force them to tap City of Brass every turn just to keep going which would push them into double burn range in many games, even if you didn't have Rorix. If you had a Mountain, you usually still stole enough time to win with Rorix before they ever hit their Vital 5. Additionally, it seemed we stopped losing to random decks. Between Molten Rain, Pulse, and Naturalize, we were beating Slide main deck without much effort. We were also preventing a vital turn of development from Tooth and Nail and getting our fatties online faster than they could. In one game against a Tooth and Nail slash Beast deck, I easily beat a player who played two entwined tooth and nails with a huge star storm and some work from Pulse of the Forge, but then I couldn't beat Rabbit. Josh beat me for about five matches with and without sideboards until he refused to play any longer. <laughs> Brian pointed out that I naturalized the wrong land, but that was hardly the only problem. I couldn't understand why, if the standard big red deck got so many tools by hybridizing the two blocks, it could fail to beat Affinity like it did at the Pro Tour which got next to nothing in the merge. Inspired by Dan Paskins last week, I took the green out of my deck list and went for focus. 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 I worked and worked. I filled the open slot with electrostatic bolt. In the bonus section, we'll learn why. I was pretty sure that I'd optimized the deck. After an additional several days of tuning, I hit the Sunday playtest session with the final version. 
Here we go. Four Solemn Simulacrum, four Talisman of Impulse, three Talisman of Indulgence, four Electrostatic Bolt, two Fireball, four Molten Rain, four Pulse of the Forge, four Rorik's Blade Wing, three Shrapnel Blast, four Starstorm, four Blink Moth Nexus, four Dark Steel Citadel, 16 Mountain. So we're all just red this time. There I learned I had committed the cardinal sin. Somewhere along the tuning, I put the blinders on. I had created a pet deck. <gasps> Has this ever happened before, Mike Flores? A few weeks ago, BDM said to me, every <laughs> deck you have ever made that was any good has been a bunch of mana, a bunch of utility spells, and like eight or nine creatures. I thought back to NBC White, Pawn Shop White, Napster, and many other low-threat board control decks with a couple of guys and a lot of powerful spells. I thought I had remade those long-ago successes in this format. I put in the work. I longed for PTQ glory. I fell in love. <laughs> but all I did was make a pet deck. There's nothing wrong with following an idea, especially a good one like the Philosophy of Fire, to its logical conclusion. But in this case, I did everything wrong. Oh, I'll do this one. A pet deck is kind of like the hot girl that lives around the corner on your floor your freshman year of college. You are sure she will get with you. You are sure that if you spend hours being friends with her, she will grow into your girlfriend. You are sure that if you help her with her homework and study with her, you will walk back to your own dorm room with a smile on your face and a souvenir in your pocket like Rich Friend Griosa at PTDC. But you are kidding yourself, man! Wake up! Even if she starts going out with you, your friends will tell you she is cheating. You don't believe them, even though she made out with two of your buddies and four others were in the room at the same time. How can this be possible? You spent so many hours with the hot girl from around the corner of your dorm room floor. She's not just beautiful, but has to be faithful. She has stringy hair, says your friend. She's putting on the freshman 15, says another. You don't hear them. You just carry her books back to her room, listen to music sitting apart on different beds, and go back to study yourself, convinced you are the luckiest guy in the class. When other hot girls come a-knocking, you ignore them, for you are entranced with your pet deck. I mean that hot girl. <laughs> Boy, have you got a lot to learn. <laughs> and before you know it, Seth Byrne is accusing you of cheating and playtesting. <laughs> What? You didn't have enough mana to play Rorik's and attack with Blink Moth Nexus that turn, Michael J. What are you doing? You don't have enough mana to buy back the pulse and play Shrapnel Blast this turn. You play and play and play, and you know you are beating Goblin Bidding. But six or seven games go by in sideboarded testing when you have four detonates and four electrostatic bolts and four furnace dragons in, and you still haven't won a game against Affinity. How quaint, says Seth. I have Disciple of the Vault and Arcbound Ravager in my hand again. You are shaking your head when you leave to watch Backlash. What good is Molten Rain? You aren't even beating Tooth and Nail anymore. The problem with the Affinity matchup is that while Rorix and Starstorm are objectively better cards than what the block build plays relationally, they aren't better against Affinity. Sure, Rorix is really bad for a white deck with sorcery speed removal. And Forge, with seven talismans, laughs at their silly fields. But against Affinity, those main deck detonates and damping matrices really do line up better than Starstorms and Bladewings that let you race the goblins. The really embarrassing games, which are painfully common if you play enough, are when you have the kill with Shrapnel Blast, 
who will die first with the blast on the stack because the other guy has disciples out. The tragic thing is, this deck always wins. Always. It just happens to win exactly one turn too late. If only I can get an untap, you think. You can't get that untap. This isn't the casual room on Magic Online. Your real opponent has the second disciple, and he played it. The luck sack. He topped the temple and now has a bonus angel out. EDT and Platy are going to dance on your face. The only way you can break it up involves throwing away the spells you were planning to use to win the game. Okay, still in it. No, you're not. He just entwined number two. What does your legend plan to do about 6-6 protection from red? I'm done with this girl. I mean this deck. This doesn't mean that the philosophy of fire makes any less sense, because I think that this non-traditional way of looking at the relationships between cards really is one of Adrian's better ideas. Just that for my own sake, I have to step away from this particular implementation of the theory. Again, Zvi said that this was not an implementation of the theory. <laughs> it was just a bunch of fatties. A bunch of fatties, yeah. Rorixes and ogres and stuff. If you are up for the challenge and don't care about the heartache that this deck has caused me, all you need to do is make this deck a winner. Speed it up by exactly one turn, or as in the bidding matchup, slow the opponent down by one. Considering the fact that as a turn five goldfish with talisman into gens, into rorix, into pulse, this is harder than it might sound. I'm thinking about adding chrome mocks, might be the way to go, and we'll make shrapnel blast all the better. But my friends say stay away, so I'm never going to be able to test the theory myself. The main upside of this deck is that it can ignore Skull Clamp card advantage by focusing directly on the face. The main downside is that unlike two-thirds of the acknowledged Tier 1 decks, it doesn't get to break Skull Clamp card advantage. White decks are seriously not a problem in the main. You lose if they draw a third Exalted Angel, but the first two aren't going to mean very much if you know how to use your talismans to manipulate the pulse math. I really do think there's a good deck buried somewhere in the big red card pool with only two weeks left before regionals, I've got to scoop this particular version up for my own good and probably play some goblin deck. Dan's deck isn't the best against white, but it is really, really good and mulligans like you wouldn't believe. Michael J. Bonus section. These things I know. I don't typically like to pollute my bonus sections with actual magic strategy. But seeing as I've fruitlessly played so many games of this format, I figure I will share the two things that I've actually learned. One, don't do it. I know you want to. You were looking at that artifact land on turn one, and you were looking at the detonate or oxidize in your opening hand. Don't do it, man. Every single time I tell myself not to do it, but most of the time, I do it anyway. It's always wrong. They always play a skull clamp on the second turn or they back their worker bee up with a Ravager. Out of the dozens of games I've played against Affinity, I think I've gone exactly one scoop out of Seth after killing his first land. One. Not only that, I've always lost. Just that I've usually had to overcome this horrible, incorrect play on turn one with better subsequent play. Now certainly, it isn't hard to execute better than the first turn definitely wrong play but it's awfully tough to beat the best deck when you're down one of your fastest, most relevant, and strategically important answer cards. First turn land destruction is not faster than sinkhole. It's a trip to Paris. 
Yes, I know it isn't fair that Affinity's 18 land deck makes drops more consistently than your 28 mana deck. But that's how I play. That's how it is. Play it, learn to beat it, or shut up. But don't make it worse by playing badly. 2. Decree of Justice is bad. Sadly, I once saw a player I respected with a number of Premier Event Top 16 finishes, and I believe even a PT Top 8, make 7 tokens to Rex slash block a Goblin player I also respected who has a JSS Top 8, and himself a very strong GP and local PTQ record. Not surprisingly, all the tokens disappeared before blocks were declared, much to the surprise of one player, with no loss of card advantage by the other. Yes, this was in a tournament. Why didn't he just make angels? I don't know. Some of you are saying, sure, Decree of Justice is a mulligan against goblins, but at least it cycles up to my wrath against affinity. The other night I went second. Seth played a turn one disciple. I didn't have the electrostatic bolt. Made a turn two ravager, frogmite, and random artifact. I had a very good draw this game and formulated my plan of gens, starstorm, pulse, and bladewing as I played my turn two talisman. His hand included a second disciple and a shrapnel blast. For those of you planning to cycle Decree of Justice on three friends, you don't always get a third turn. Even though there are some control decks out there, this is a beatdown format. Even the slow decks can set up a single, tur- single turn attacks for the kill. If you don't like it, if you don't treat it like a beatdown format, you yourself will be doomed to be beaten down. Mm. I forgot all the like, future Easter eggs in this. So that those red decks and like talking about like which the card configurations in the big red decks ended up being the Corota style red deck that Josh used to make top eight of U.S. Nationals the next year. Oh, so the Sensei's Divining Top was actually the card that changed everything. So it was the first time that you had like a big red deck or a kind of big burn. It was like a big burn deck, less than like a big red deck mm-hmm. could control its drawing of land or 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 spell. Right. So like you as a burn player in modern like. The top of your deck declares if you're going to draw land or spell. Exactly. If you have Sensei's Divining Top, that changes. And when you have like five and six casting cost burn spells, it can matter a lot, right? You're mm. like, if I just hit the land drop here, I'm going to fireball him for lethal. Gotcha. Know? So that's one thing. And then it's funny about this 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 thing with um all that work we did with like not oxidizing on the first turn and Decree of Justice being bad. I ended up playing this great mono white deck that I worked on with Seth. Um mm. And then Brian Kibler, who was also mentioned in the article, used it to top eight U.S. Nationals that year. Uh, it was a we, we it never had a good name, which is called the Green White Deck. <laughs> just like, but it was like the reason it was it was so awesome against Affinity and like a ninety percent game one win percentage against Affinity. Kibler ripped through the Swiss with it, and then of course lost to Affinity in the top eight. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. So, like, what was the most important thing you learned from? This is like two different articles, right? Like the yeah. first article is about what the philosophy of fire is, which I think is is. I mean, it's still seminal, right? It's important to understand uh, in yeah. terms of like one your, of the, your cars and how they match up against one your of the main and how do they main think about your, your pillars car. of magic theory. I had completely forgotten that like the whole portion about the decks mm. was just like this descent into madness of you just trying to make like the most powerful big red deck with yeah, and like the whole like this is just the girl you have a crush on from down the hall thing. I, mean, I remember that girl from my freshman year of college. <laughs> That's like a real thing. I actually like the second part. I, you can feel it. Like, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. You just feel it, right? I can. I was just playtest so much. Like that was like I, I think I would playtest forty hours a week back. It's just interesting so looking at all the little like configurations and trying to like make that deck to beat Affinity. Yeah, but it was just too fast. It was well, it just wasn't the right time. You know, mm-hmm. you know, we made a 
or the white deck was actually the right solution. And we, a lot of the stuff we learned from playing the big red deck informed the big white deck. And like I said, Kibler made top eight at nationals that year. He went undefeated in the standard portion and at nationals. I played it at regionals, and Seth tricked me. He said I was just afraid. So there was this card called Sacred Ground. It costs white and a one. Mm-hmm. And the card, it's an enchantment that says your lands can't be destroyed. So I had that in my sideboard, and Seth called me a like a coward or whatever. And so I didn't play it, and then I lost to Flash Fires. Like, like unlosable. Do you know what Flash Fires is? R3, destroy all planes. Ooh. So, like, he's just like, no one's going to play Flash Fires. Don't worry about it. So, like, I literally had, like, a lock on top. Like, I couldn't. My deck was, like, the best. It could always beat Affinity, always beat Goblins, always beat Burn Decks, right? But my opponent was just, like, destroyed him in game one. He's just like, I fl- game two, Flash Fires, game three, Flash Fires. So, I'm like, if I just, I had the card in my sideboard, but he tricked me into not playing it. Because he j- just called me like a coward, basically. Uh-huh. He said, you shouldn't play this because that's only what a weakling would do. That that kind of stuff works on me. <laughs> I once played a terrible deck in a Grand Prix because Zach Hill told me that my deck was ingenious. He's like, this deck is ingenious. I'm going to play it in the Grand Prix, too. And I'm like, ah, it must be. It wasn't good at all. Mm. It's, an, it's an easy way to get me. So, you know, the article has two parts. The first part is... Here's the theory. One card equals two life. We're just pegging a shock. Mm-hmm. Like, the reason we pegged it as a shock isn't because there's anything so objectively magical about the card shock or the card seal of fire, you know, anything like that. It's just one mana, this, one, two damage. This is pretty much what people will play, right? Yeah. A card worse than this people won't play. And a card better than this is too good, right? Sometimes you get the too good version. You get lightning bolt sometimes. But not really, right? Like, it's been 13 years and Shock is currently in standard, okay? <laughs> Shock has made top eight of Pro Tours. You know, it, it's, a, it's a highly played card right now in standard. Nobody's excited to play it. That's just, but you're like, if you get 10 of these, your mm. opponent's dead, okay? So the first part of the article is, this is a theory. You probably don't think about magic this way. So this is 13 years ago. Mm. There had been burn decks before this, but like, I don't think people thought about it like this. They were like, even when I was talking about when I was gunslinging against the kids, I was using my burn spells to try to kill their creatures and then to clear a path for my creatures, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not the right way to beat opponents when their creatures are too big, right? You just use your creatures to chump block their giants and and then send a burn to their face, right? Like, so... But just no one had ever thought... Whether people had played games that involved those tactics or not, no one had ever written about this right so Mm -hmm. that's why the second part of the article is like oh here's this great theory this is how i'm going to implement it which is a complete failure of the theory right like it's just big it's just like here's a fatty it's a fatty it's like we're like seething song and talismans and fireballs you didn't really like really think about your deck in relation i think i think you just like this deck a lot and you didn't really think of it in relation to the theory yeah like i i think i've really just liked the card rorix blade wing like, and yeah, I just wanted huge, to play Rorik's Dragon. Like, it's just, yeah, it's like a 6-5 dragon, you know? Which is crazy. I, I don't... You've known me for a while. Do I just fall in love with magic creatures? Is that... I mean, Eidolon and no. the Great Red. Okay, I don't think I But not Special like huge, case. huge dragons. I was just in love with Rorik's. No, I don't care. <laughs> I'm so mad at Ulamog. He's always in my hand. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just wanted to play with Rorik's. Like, I don't know. So, and that may have kind of blinded the people are just doing faster and better things. Yeah, the deck was too right. slow. I, I think I think we can parallel this. I don't, I don't mean to uh, 
to beat up on you, but you know, at New Jersey, you played the Sultai Marvel deck, right? Yeah. And I think that was kind of, I think we had talked about Marvel so much at that point. Marvel was kind of like, it was our, just my yeah, hot like, girl from down the hall. Hot girl from down the hall. Yeah. It's like, wow, I can turn this card into like anything. It can be an Ulamog. It can be a noxious, a noxious gear. That's crazy. So right? I think the difference between me now and me the back, I, I literally play tested like 30 or 40 hours a week back Sure, then, sure. Which is like a, like a job. And you're like, like actively playing in pro, like pro tour qualifiers. Yeah, I was like, and I was like on the pro tour. Yeah, like, exactly. Forget about pro tour qualifiers, right? Yeah. Like a reference being on the pro tour. Right? Like, yeah. you know, so I'd won a PTQ like probably a week before I wrote this article, you mm. know? So um, yeah, and I mean, I was not a good Pro Tour player, right? But I was good enough to play on the Pro Tour, and mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I played in, like, every big tournament they let me play in, which is uh, not true right now, right? So I'm just—you were asking me, am I going to go to Vegas? And I'm like, well, if I played in that Grand Prix trial two weeks ago, I might be going to Vegas. Are there more trials? I have no idea. If I probably. want a trial, I'll probably have to go. But, I mean, it's it goes through a Monday, dude. Thursday through Monday? It doesn't go through Monday. It does. I just looked at the schedule. It goes Thursday to Friday, Friday to Saturday, Saturday to Sunday. Oh, maybe I... Oh, wait. Oh, you're right. Sunday's the beginning of the... I looked at the... Sunday's the end of the... Day two of the modern one, I think. So, I mean, I have two kids now. I guess I had one kid back then. But I have, like, two kids now. Sure. Like, you don't play on the Pro Tour that often. That's that's (laughs) one way of putting it. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Um... And of course, obviously, maybe you didn't put in the, the play test hours. You would have. I mean, if I, if I were to, if I, well, when I qualified in Utah last year, mm. I played a lot going into that tournament. Sure. I feel like I might have never been as prepared for a constructed tournament as when I qualified with Mono Blue Five Color Dragons. Like, I just practiced infinite. And like, mm. um, there was a guy, Brian Raymer, who like had done well in the Star City Tour with like a the non five color version. I literally just I'd never met him. I've still never met him. I talked to him on Facebook every day. You know, and he like plays at Star City and like he's just like just grinding every single day. And we're like, all right, these are my notes for the day. <laughs> it was crazy. It was like my new best friend just making this one deck. Mm. Um so I don't know. I guess if you have like so it's not so different than my life right now. That was like, you know, a year or two years ago. Um can summon the focus to prepare for a tournament. I just chose not to do that in the case of Saltai Stink Bomb. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we always kind of bounce back and forth these ideas with Marvel. We, I think Marvel's so cool. Right? And I mean, I think I would have become... Like, it would not have been hard for you to be like, Mike, we should just play the green-white Marvel deck. I probably would have just latched on to your, yeah. your, your sentence. And I think I think if we had to send upon the sinful... Yeah, in our deck instead of like noxious gear hulk things, maybe it would have been a little different. Is the Sand Upon the Sinful substantially better against Mardu? Well, yeah, maybe not against. It is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. Kills, of course. Uh, the three. It's great against Greenlight too, but I think we might have probably gotten rolled by the four colors. All right, so let's talk about this article anyway. Um, so it's a good theory to have in practice, but make sure not to get blindsided by it. You mean the second half? Second half, I mean. Well, about the first, the first half, I think, is what's important. Okay, so let's go back to the first half then. So, I mean, what do you think about the first half of the article? Okay, so question, why do you open up with the whole Necroponent Skittering Scourge example, those three different decks? So, I think, well, this is a different time, right? This is 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that people have a basic familiarity with what the card Necropotence is. Sure. I think it was probably legal in some formats or something back then, versus now... The average player has probably never even heard of that card at this point, right? But it was probably the most iconic spell uh, in Magic. Like, more iconic than Ancestral Recall at the time. 
Right, so it's like a whole wave of decks was around this, and then an entire like cottage industry of combo decks was built around it that started with Adrian Sullivan. And so I started there because the easiest way to understand the concept of trading cards and life directly from one another is Necropotence. Mm-hmm. Necropotence, you put into play for every li- once you put into play, so it's X minus one for every one life you pay, you get a card, right? People can wrap their head around that. So what I'm saying is, for every one card I play, you lose two life, right? You just create the baseline relationship around necropotence there. Mm-hmm. That's why I did it. But did you have to do it this way? Maybe not. But I think it. I I think at the time anyway, I thought like I'm gonna I'm gonna cut through, cut through, not objection, uh, but just get get to the core of people's brains on this faster if I go this way. And why did you mean that, or did you mean like why did I tell the skittering scourge story? Like how it maybe relates to the whole trial of fire. Uh, so I told the skittering scourge story out of vanity because <laughs> it's a great story about how great I am at mind games. <laughs> obviously, whatever whatever tangential reason I could get it <laughs> to get in, obviously that's why I did it. I think that like the mind games we aren't as prevalent in modern like they imagine. You think, I, you know, I don't think so. people who aren't good at mind games always say that to me. You think so? I mean, I, I, mean, I just I've never really seen it happen. It's uh, I mean, this was a dramatic one, right? Because there was an audience and you have your like, audience to be all huge players. And we'd already qualified. Right. So, yeah, we were in the we were playing in the top four. So we had already gotten our blue envelopes at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's a different context. But I mean, I don't know. I can certainly think of many cases in tournaments that I've done well in. in but how many of these tournaments where, were like, I don't know, maybe it's just me playing standard and, and not seeing like really an opening to make some those kinds of. I mean, did we, I, I, I want to say, didn't we do uh, an episode not that long ago where I talked a story about when I was playing Grixis against Chris Massioli playing Mono Red? I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, that was just not that wasn't that long ago. I mean, I qualified for for nationals that way, right? Like, um, you just put yourself in a yeah. There's just different rule, and I'm sorry, not different rules, different tools that you can use to accomplish goals that you want to accomplish, and the tools aren't always the straightforward implementation of the cards that you draw off the top of your deck, hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the term "play the man, not the not the hand," right? Mm. And uh, you know, people have biases. You know, I'll see. Here's the easiest example I can think of recently because you're not gonna, you're you're not gonna maybe um, get it otherwise. Uh, do you know Brian G? He's on the First Strike podcast, also on Mana Deprived. It's a good friend of mine. We, we were teammates uh, last year for Pro Draw Milwaukee. Mm. Brian G uh, made top eight of the WMCQ qualifier in Philadelphia two years ago. His opponent in the top eight was Steve Rubin. Okay, Steve Rubin. Obviously, awesome player. Brian G, very good player, who most, much less famous than Steve Rubin, right? Brian G uh, is playing black-blue control. Steve Rubin's playing Abzan, okay? Um, Brian G mulligans. His hand is all lands, all right? So, so on six, it's all lands. It's all lands. Okay. Uh, he, he makes a big show of it and then doesn't throw the hand back. Mm. On uh, Steve Rubin's on the play. On, but he hasn't made any play in the first three turns. On his third turn, Brian G plays a temple, 
uh, you know, comes to Skyland, goes to play the temple, stops, takes the temple back, and puts an untapped island in play, and then passes the turn. Representing a dissolve. Dissolve. He does not have a dissolve. Steve Rubin does not play his Sea Trino on the fourth turn. Wow. Brian G. destroys him with no spells because he gave up the one turn. Okay? If he had just played a Sea Trino, the Sea Trino would have killed Brian G. Brian G. now had the time to draw into, um, draw into superior removal, permission, and card advantage because Steve Rubin did not play the Sea Trino. It's not fair to say that Steve Rubin played badly. Is Steve Rubin's... He played if, carefully. Well, right. no, if his algorithm is, if I play my Siege Rhino and it gets countered, I will lose, and I believe my opponent to have a counterspell, then he shouldn't play the Siege Rhino, right? Okay. It just so happened that Brian G. didn't have a counterspell, right? That is an example of a mind game that people can easily understand, Okay. That's not, it's not a bluff. People don't use the term bluff correctly in magic. Bluffing is, is relation to poker only because poker has the game mechanic of folding, okay? There's no folding in magic, right? You can influence your opponent's plays by representing things uh, that may or may not be the thing you actually have, right? So uh, this is, that you get that one, right? That's, that's very, very easy to understand. Sure. I, I remember, okay, then maybe this was like when in, in regionals when I was playing the finals against um, Dan, I I played like a Swiss Spear turn one, attack him, turn two, land, attack with Swiss Spear, and pass. Yeah. To hold up Skullcrack. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't think he, I don't, I don't know if he, I mean, I don't know if he has the combo or not in mm. his hand, but either but you way, knew it, his it'll, deck did, right? yeah, either way, if I tap out, if he has a combo, I'm dead. Yeah. But if he doesn't, there's a chance, there's a, a percentage point, there's, there's a percentage of, of him not going for it to play around Skullcrack and maybe waiting a turn to find... And you get, you know, if that yeah. happens, you get three points, right? Yeah, I get, yeah. But you sacrifice one point in order to get three points, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, a crazier implementation is the play that Chad Ellis made. So we last week we did The Danger of Cool Things by Chad Ellis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chad was playing a mono blue deck, and uh, he had a handful of lands. And on his third turn, he didn't play one of them. Instead, he discarded a card. The card he discarded was Counterspell. What signal does that give the opponent? I have free reign. I have so many Counterspells that I can discard Counterspell. I have more Counterspells than I have lands. You know, so... He could have played a land. Instead of playing a land, he discarded a counterspell. Okay. You don't get why, right? If he plays the land he, he's, and he has one counterspell for resistance, he thinks he's going to lose, right? But if, uh, because he doesn't actually have enough counterspells to beat, to beat mm. the opponents. But, but if he discards the counterspell and not play the land, the signal is that if I discard the card counterspell, he still has UU up, right? He'd say, I must have... Either another counterspell or cards even better than counterspell if I'm discarding counterspell. By the way, there's almost nothing better than counterspell. But a play like that is similar to Brian G's play. He just made it so the opponent didn't go for it. He just got the time he needed to establish his resources. Hmm. Right? So there's a lot more play to magic than just making the mechanical play that everyone would make in that situation. 
and it, you see a situation like that, like it's not intuitive to you, right? Um, I think if I pay attention to it more, I can I can see like those those plays. So uh, this is the last one I'll do. So it's, uh, at the time, it was the best best uh, utilization of mental game I had ever seen in my life. The players are Neil Reeves and Patrick Chapin. It's the top, I want to say top four of Grand Prix Milwaukee 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in the top four already. Chapin's playing green-blue opposition, and Neil Reeves is playing Psychotog. Neil Reeves has the reputation for having the strongest mental game in of all American players at this point. The strongest. Chapin draws his opening hand, which is Birds of Paradise, Land of War Elves, and Lands. I would have thrown it back in a second. It has no action. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, Chapin deliberates over the hand and then keeps it. Right? Okay. So, what he ends up doing is he just, um, he's just like, pretends his hand is awesome. Right? It's all, it's all mana. Right? Just birds and lands. And, and then he waits until he has, because he just plays his mana creatures out, right? Mm-hmm. So he waits until he has six, and he plays the card Compulsion, right? It's the only threat that he's... You know what Compulsion is? It's U1 for an enchantment. and has two abilities. One of them is U1, discard a card, draw a card. Mm-hmm. The other one is U1, sacrifice, compulsion, draw a card. Right? So, uh, so it's like a really horrible cantrip if you want to pay a bazillion mana into it, but you can also discard, uh, discard cards that draw a card. So he's six man. He plays compulsion. He's played in because he's just made. He's just like has this mental image that he's port, uh, portraying to Neil that his hand is awesome. His hand is all mana, right? And the compulsion lands. But the thing is, when you have all mana, then you can use compulsion a lot because mm-hmm. he has all this mana. So he just fixed his hand, and then his hand really did become awesome at some point. But if Neil just counterspells his compulsion there, the Patrick has nothing. He's like bird of paradise. Okay, so I play in a way that. So what did Patrick do to like get him to get? He just like my hands off. He's just like he like look at and so he didn't deliberate over his hand. Like I, I mean, he like snap kept it, snap keep. And I was just like, this hand is. I would have snap shipped it. <laughs> like it's so bad, right? But he waited until he had six. So the thing is, if Neil only has one counter, so Patrick read Neil for one counter spell, right? Mm-hmm. So if he only has one counter spell, and he counters the compulsion. Patrick has four remaining mana. He can't so he opposition. Play, yeah. He can't lose, right? Gotcha. Okay. Neil's toast if, if that if that turn happens so neil didn't counter the counter spell i'm sorry didn't counter the compulsion once the compulsion's in play patrick can't lose that's the, uh, the at least the way he played it because yeah. he had so much garbage the compulsion transforms his garbage into, into, into real straws just straws right action. so if you have like it depends if he has like all creature removal or something like it's it's a completely different situation yeah because neil's deck has way more natural card advantage because it had the card factor fiction and patrick mm. didn't so anyway uh Point being, this is far afield of the philosophy of fire at this point. <laughs> you can play in a way that, you know, your opponents think you have one thing and then they make decisions. Like, you know, we're playing rock, paper, scissors, and I convince you I'm going to play paper. You know, you're going to pop out the scissors and I hit you with a rock and you're toast. All right. That's all right. There we go. It happens in magic, man. Okay. So, anyway, back to the philosophy of fire. So, yeah. Jedi mind tricks, good. <laughs> but back to uh, it's a it's a I think it's still a relevant way of um, thinking about your deck and your relation of your cards to how they match up against your opponent's cards. I think it's you know 
the philosophy itself is, I think, is still useful today. Mm. It's one of the things that it, was it Harsh Mentor is that the name of the new card? Yep. So I think Harsh Mentor is an interesting card uh, in terms of evaluating against the philosophy of fire because it generates these packets of damage that are essentially direct damage, mm. and it's in that case. If you're just full of burn spells, it's essentially card advantage, right? So, cool. Certainly, we both love Eidolon of the Great Revel. So, I think we'll end up liking this card, and we'll, <laughs> you'll see it in our seventy fives sometime in the future. Yeah, sometime well, in the near probably future. Probably, I'll play it. Coolio, <laughs> Coolio. All right, this was an Ancestral Recall podcast. I'm Roman Fusco, and I'm Michael J. Peace out. Right.